This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, welcome to the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. Listen, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. So our big thing on the podcast today, what's it like to play it being Prime Minister? No, we're not speaking to Boris Johnson, uh, but Gillian Anderson makes her debut as Margaret Thatcher in The Crown this weekend. So we thought we'd speak to some other people who've played Prime Ministers before. So we're going to hear from Jason Watkins, who played Harold Wilson in The Crown. We'll hear from Mark Dexter, who played David Cameron uh, on the telly in Coalition by James Graham, but also on stage in the audience as well. And Jan Ravens, brilliant Jan Ravens, who spent three years giving voice to uh, Theresa May. So that's coming up as the big thing uh, on the podcast later uh, in a moment we'll um, have to panelists but um, we're looking for people to play the quiz can you get to number 10 if you haven't heard it before it's 10 questions each loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs the more questions you get right the better the place you get in our cabinet uh, if you want to have a go at that get in touch with me now email me matt.chorley at times.radio and we'll get you on the radio very soon but we kick off as we are doing now on the podcast and lots of you seem to like it we kick off with our panellist discussion of what's going on in the news and today it's the times is robert crampton and from city am rachel cunliffe so let's talk about spin doctors there's obviously been a lot of them uh in the news today with talk of lee kane boris johnson's chief spin doctor director of communications uh resigning spin doctors were uh raised at pmqs yesterday keir starmer uh complaining that um 130 million pounds have been spent on pr firms during the pandemic. So I sort of wanted to just sort of really talk about what is the purpose of spin doctors is sort of a bit of a dirty word. It's sort of uh, it's all dark arts and mucking about and in according to Keir Starmer wasting money. But is there, is there a point to spin doctors? Should we should we value spin doctors more, Robert? Well, I suppose we should if they're any good. But this 130 million has been wasted, hasn't it? Because the the, uh, the popular perception is that the whole thing's been a cock up. So yeah, spend 130 million if it if it gets your message across, uh, but don't spend it if you're left eight months down the line with people wondering about your competence. Uh, what do you think, Rachel? I mean, the, the government's saying that it was basically spent on TV, radio, and print adverts. It's all the all the sort of you know wash your hands, uh, hands face space, and and all that sort of stuff. So, does, I mean, it's public information messaging really rather than vote Tory messaging but um should we should we be valuing uh spin I mean particularly in a pandemic it's you know it's it's not just like a a nice thing to have it's the it's almost at the heart of the whole strategy isn't it 
Well, I'm very reassured by this because it gives me faith that there is there are jobs after journalism. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, Kate, Kate Bingham, uh, who, who's running the Vaccine Task Force, paid 670000 for her own team of PR uh, agents who helped her do a podcast. I'm very cheap. I would have done it for half that. Um, but on, on a serious note, there are important uh, messages that the government needs to get across, particularly with vaccination. We know that the anti-vax movement is, is something we have to be worried about. It's sort of growing all over the world. And we have to have uh, public faith in the vaccine that, that the government is, is hopefully going to roll out. And messaging is a key part of that. Uh, however, if you have spent nine months uh, undermining public faith in a number of, of ways and having very mixed messaging and, and confusing communications, as unfortunately the government has, it does seem like a waste of money and it gets to a point where it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it, people aren't going to believe the messages that they're getting, which unfortunately I think is the position the government is teetering on at the moment. It's part of the problem, Robert, that if, we, if it was just the message, it's fine. It's the fact that there's quite a lot of focus on the messengers, whether that's Dominic Cummings or Lee Kane or whatever it might be. Um, and and that's, that, that, you know, if, if people decide they don't like Dominic Cummings because of Barnard Castle and all of that, they, they take the, yeah. the important public public health messages yeah. less seriously. Yeah, I mean, Alistair Campbell always said, didn't he, that when you, you become the story, then it's time to go. And, uh, and he did. And now Lee Kane has. Uh, I mean, he was a director of communication, so you kind of think, why? What's he being paid for? If, if, if we're having to spend 130 million on other people to do that job, why, what's he doing? I never quite understand this, where uh, somebody has a job and the company immediately outsources it to somebody else to do essentially the same job. Uh, yeah, I mean, once the focus is on these uh, is on these uh, on the individuals, then. Uh, they need to leave the stage, I think. I mean, it's a drop in the ocean. I mean, look, adding up the figures in the Times this morning, they now spent something close to 170 billion uh, on, the, you know, on various on the furlough schemes and 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 uh, PPE and whatnot. So this is a drop in the ocean, but it's uh, it's still a significant amount of money for for no evident reward, no evident <laughs> benefit. Okay, well, let's stick with money and the sort of the flip side mm -hmm. uh, of it. Obviously, we've had the ONS figures out this morning showing that the economy has, has bounced back a bit, but we're still quite a long way from where we were pre, pre-crisis. pre um, Story on the front of the Times today, middle class facing a £14 billion tax raid on investments. Second homeowners, investors and pensioners face paying tens of thousands of pounds more in tax under review ordered by the Chancellor. Uh, Rachel, um, it, presumably this is something that is going to exercise the readers of City AM. Uh, yes, we're obviously big fans of the uh, the lower rate of capital gains tax for a number of reasons, one of which is that the, the income that goes into buying uh, assets or businesses that then make profit and then you pay capital gains tax on, that income has already been taxed, so it's kind of a form of double taxation. Um, it's also, though, the, the lower rate is meant to incentivise risk-taking and, and businesses and entrepreneurship. Obviously, it doesn't always do that if what you've done is buy a second home and just sit there and wait for it to shoot up in value, but it's meant to be a, a tax break or a lower tax to reward 
entrepreneurship. Um, but the, the Conservative Party are really in a difficult spot here because in the uh, in the election campaign a year ago, they made a manifesto promise not to raise taxes. Obviously, best laid plans and all that, COVID happened, and they now need to find the money from somewhere. But every time the Treasury or Rishi Sunak suggests a rise in, in income tax, a rise in capital gains tax, uh, inheritance tax, uh, any, anything like that, rising VAT, then um, the, 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 the kind of uh, right-wing conservative part of the, of the party goes, no, no, we can't, we, we, we can't have that. It was in our manifesto promise. And unfortunately, there's another wing of the conservative party that says, yes, but we're also the party that balances the books and, and doesn't let debt spiral out of control. So they're in a difficult position there. Uh, and uh, you knew I was going to mention this. They're going to keep the triple lock for, for pensioners, which is going to see uh, the state pension increase by up to seven times more than inflation or, or wage growth uh, and, and going to cost an extra six billion. Um, so th- th- their priorities there over how you, you plug that funding gap, who should pay and what their spending priorities are, are a little bit skewed, I would say, as a millennial. <laughs> Um, Robert, part of the problem is that everyone knows that there is a, you know, there's a, there is a money problem. Uh, the, Rishi Sunak has spent a phenomenal amount of money, and at some point, some of that is going to have to be uh, clawed back or repaid, or you know, the, certainly the debt is going to have to be repaid. Um, uh, and, and this story about, you know, d- uh, diddling about with capital gains tax and second homeowners, it's all sort of a little bit sort of out of the spotlight, underhand, yeah. behind this, rather than coming out and saying we've had an enormous crisis, been a massive health crisis, the NHS needs some more money, we're going to put a penny on income tax. Well, right. I mean, the, the three big sources of, uh, of, of public, public uh, income uh, are uh, income tax, national insurance and VAT, I think. I think CGTs are pretty small amount and you know even if he did it and even if it raised 14 billion a year which i doubt he's uh he's got to raise 40 billion a year i think for the foreseeable future but every time every time the treasury floats something i mean as, as rachel said he did they, they floated the idea of, of easing the triple lock which i i would struggle to uh, justify uh i mean i would struggle to justify the triple lock and then and that wasn't just the story back benches that was johnson who i think uh shot that down so somebody's got to pay for it i mean it's eventually it will it will fall due uh and it'll just can't you just can't keep kicking it down the road and say well our grandchildren are going to pay for it uh although they probably will be doing so yes i think the cg i think see that anything just changes to cgt are fairly uh peripheral really it's yeah. uh it's the, the big one the big ones are yeah income tax and that you know, wouldn't want to muck around with that so yes i agree with you uh Obviously, there comes a point where tax rises fail to yield more income because they disincentivise people. But I think a penny wouldn't wouldn't go amiss, would it? And I remember uh, Rachel having and, and and I'll be honest, this is a group I, I wasn't aware of, but sort of Lib Dem ultras on social media. Um, after I think it was uh, Ed Davies' uh, Lib Dem conference speech, which was just a sort of nice bland muddle. Um, I sort of tweeted, you know, why you know, the Lib Dems once you know had a penny on income tax for. For schools, and that was a very clear policy. And you know, and if you've got what a clear policy which turned out to be popular, that puts pressure on the government of the day because people ask that question. And I said, why aren't they doing the same thing on the NHS? And some of the Lib Dem just told me that well, actually that has been Lib Dem policy for several years. Although I pointed out that Ed David didn't seem to bother mentioning it. But I, I suppose my question: Why do you think the opposition? Why is why is um, Keir Starmer not um, taking hold of this and saying we were, we know this is difficult, but we think uh, that everyone is willing to do it, and, and and we would put a penny on income tax for for the NHS. 
Maybe because he doesn't want to steal ideas from from the Lib Dems. Um, <laughs> maybe because uh, he is trying to get away from Labour's image of being the the more tax party, which it was under under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think a penny doesn't sound very much, but you're effectively raising income tax by a percentage point, which does add up, given that it's um, it, it's already uh, over 50% for some of the, the top owners once, once you take all the different um, the taxes into account. I think tax definitely needs simplifying. I think our tax code is 12 times the length of the King James Bible, um, which is too long for any, for any document, let alone a tax code. And I speak to businesses all the time that say we would, and you might not believe this, but that their line is we would happily pay a bit more tax if it was just simpler, the amount that we spend on lawyers and accountants trying to work out where we fall in the various parts of the tax code, more money and resources is put towards that. And you could actually save money for businesses and save money for the government if you if you simplified it. But I think it's exactly right to say that capital gains tax is is tinkering around the edges. It's a, it's a very, relatively small tax. And there are much, much bigger, more sweeping reforms that could be made. Unfortunately, any reform that you make is going to upset a lot of people. Uh, and those people, if it's about tax, are probably going to be the ones writing into newspapers. I think you could well be right. But on the subject of being upset, uh, Robert, you wrote in your column in The Times this week about men crying and one particular man crying over one particular news event. This is a chap called an American uh, wrestler turned actor called Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, who has, you know, he's a big, uh, kind of superficially macho guy, and he has, he admitted and caused a bit of a storm by saying that he cried manly tears. I think he said one or two or ten at Biden's <laughs> election, or perhaps more accurately at Trump's defeat. Uh, and I wrote, I took that as a starting point to write about how the subject of men crying really ought to be one of those things that's settled by now. It didn't ought to be news, but it kind of is somehow. And uh, obviously we should all let our emotions out in that way, given that a lot of men let their emotions out in much more uh, destructive ways. Uh, they should be, uh, it should be embraced. And so well done. Well done, Dwayne. <laughs> well done, Dwayne. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, when was the last time you cried, Robert? Let me think. I think it may be when the cat died. That seems, uh, that's, that, that, that seems like a... That um, was a while back. And the other, the, and the, the replacement cat is, is moving, moving towards mortality as well, I'm afraid. So that, that's, that's sort of on my radar. That would be the next big one, I think. I didn't cry when Biden was elected. I cried when Obama was elected. But I was drunk, so... That, <laughs> that, that will... Ha that, that, yeah, that yeah. will do that. Yeah. Um, uh, Rachel, what do you think? Should, should men cry more? Definitely. I mean, I'm someone who can cry from anything. I, I cried at a bread advert once. It was very emotional. Um, <laughs> and and uh, more, more, more gender equality there. But on, on Biden, I think there is a picture of him embracing his son, who obviously um, has had a, a difficult... Biden's had a, a life full of tragedy, and, and the relationship between him and Hunter has not always been easy. And you, you can tell in the picture that there's a, there's a tear in Joe Biden's eye there. And I mm. think I find that image very moving because it's not just men having emotions. It's um, parenthood and, and, and fatherhood and the relationship between fathers and, and sons. And that's not something that you usually see depicted in that kind of uh, emotional, intimate way. And I think it's really powerful. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah I to totally, totally agree. I was just having now asked you the question. I was trying to think the last time I 
Not totally. I mean, I, I can't watch Toy Story 3 without welling up, I have to say. No. It's not full, full bone uh, blob. It. And oh, oh, Instant Family. We watched Instant Family again recently as well. Have you, have you seen Instant Family, the film? No, I haven't, no. It's incredible. It's based, on, it's based on a true story about a couple who decide to adopt and they end up basically accidentally adopting three children. Um, and oh. it is brilliantly funny. And then just, there's a, you know, it gets you. It gets me every time. But anyway, I totally agree with you. I think we'd all I'm do I'm going to watch it right now. Well, there we are. Well, that's the beauty of lockdown. Um, movie tips. Exactly. Wait, well, I mean, you can listen to the end of the rest of the show first if you want to, Robert. But, okay, um... all right. <laughs> Robert Crampton and Rachel Cunliffe there. Up next on the Redbox podcast, what's it like to play the Prime Minister? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and now it's time to bring you the big thing from my Times radio show. My goal is to change this country from being dependent to self-reliant, and I think in that I am succeeding. Joblessness, recession, crises. It's a dangerous game to make enemies left, right and centre. Not if one is comfortable with having enemies. Are you? Oh, yes. Wow. That, of course, was Gillian Anderson who makes her debut as Margaret Thatcher in The Crown this weekend. But what we're going to explore now is what it's like to step into the shoes and costumes of our political leaders. Coming up, we're going to hear from fake Theresa May and fake David Cameron. But first, Harold Wilson. Well, I suppose I should kick things off with an apology. Whatever for? Winning. I'm aware of your affection for my predecessor and doubtless you'd have preferred him to have continued in office. It is my duty not to have preferences. Well, we all do, though, don't we? We can't help it. It's human nature. And I can see the attraction of someone like Balshalik, someone you can chat with about the racing, someone well-bred, high-born, who knows how to hold his cutlery as opposed to a ruffian like me. Hardly. Still, the country said otherwise. They'd had enough of the mess those Conservatives left us. Well, there we are. That's Jason Watkins playing Howard Wilson in The Crown, in the earlier series of The Crown. Well, I've been speaking to Jason uh, uh, about playing Howard Wilson, someone who became Prime Minister when he was just two years old. I, I remember him in my early years, certainly on the black and white television in our, in our living room in the corner, yeah. So, uh, and then into the sort of colour of the 1970s, yeah, I remember him, uh, I remember him 
very much in the winter of discontent and all that uh, that time, yeah. So how does it work then? Do you get a call and just get off of the job or do you have to audition for The Crown? No, I had to audition. I mean, I'd, I'd worked with Peter Morgan before on uh, The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries and I think uh, that was a rather fruitful uh, collaboration uh, in many ways and uh, not least because I got to play a real person which I uh, really enjoyed and it probably rediscovered my ability to impersonate a bit. So I think... Um, when this came along, I know I auditioned with many other people for it. I mean, there were, I'm mentioning no names, but there was there were seven of us. And uh, I, I got down to the last two and uh, I was so fortunate enough to get cast. So I had quite an extensive screen testing of uh, all wearing, you know, Harold Wilson wigs and costumes. And so it was, you know, it was, it was pretty full on. How did you go about preparing for it to, to become a prime minister? I took myself away, which I'd done two or three, four times to a, a friend's house and, uh, uh, and, and, and locked myself up for two or three days and just do all those sort of things that, you know, maybe only I'm really interested in. <laughs> but, you know, but yes, you do, you do lots of watching of footage and try and do this sort of instinctive impersonation of him. So just because I can impersonate reasonably well. So, you, you, you know, you can kind of, there's just that kind of instinctive bit. And then there's the sort of research about where he's from and how he gets certain vowel sounds and what his character might be, how he thinks, what's his, how does he think quickly, does he think slowly, what's his, you know, all those sorts of things. They all feed in. Yeah. Um, I read, obviously read biographies and so you, you get to know what are the kingpins and what are the real building blocks of, of someone's character. Um, but one fascinating thing is that his father was, his father used to do this trick where he'd, he'd turn up and somebody would say, oh, so can you tell us, uh, you know, uh, 765,000 divided by 728. And he'd go, 800,201. So he had this incredible, sort of like a party trick. Yeah. And Harold, Harold, that's where he met his wife, actually, Mary, at, uh, at the local tennis club where she played. And he, his father, Harold's father, came along and did this act. And, Harold came along and watched him. So and that's where he met Mary. But so he had this incredible ability to analyze numbers, Harold Wilson. Incredible brain, often the sharpest knife in the drawer in any room. And one thing that he was very good at was be able to see a whole series of numbers and statistics and form a viewpoint um, instinctively. And, and, and people accused him of being slightly kind of, uh, uh, um, set back from things, slightly displaced. But I think emotionally, because I think once he saw uh, the outcome before anyone else, he was quite relaxed about it. So it's those sort of things that are interesting. Uh, yeah. that's, that's to do with sort of upbringing, but also just to answer your question perhaps more accurately, I tried to meet people that knew him. Yeah. So Bernard Donoghue, Lord Donoghue, was a policy advisor with Wilson in his latter years. So he very kindly, uh, met me and, and I, I spent quite a lot of time talking about his impressions of Harold Wilson, who was a friend, you know, so that really helped. What's it like that first moment though when you, you go in, in character to see the Queen, the sets are amazing, uh, what does that feel like? It, well, it's, it's staggering, I mean, I think I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, Buckingham Palace been a couple of times and I can, I can see the room, you know, where, where it is. 
And so when I walked in there, it went onto the set, which is a, it is a stately home, but it has been furnished in such a way. It is magnificent and you never worry at all in any of the scenes that you're not surrounded and framed by this incredible accuracy, whether it be the sort of pomp of Buckingham Palace and, or, or even, you know, at the other end of uh, things, you know, up a van. So, you know, it, it has this accuracy. And I think you try and sort of live up to that, really. And, and, and that comes with impersonation and, and, and accuracy. And so going on to the set is kind of, is kind of awe-inspiring. And I think Wilson, although, of course, he had been to the palace before he meets uh, uh, the Queen, he, um, we need to feel that, that these are boys, he was a boy scout, you know, you need to feel that this little boy scout goes to meet the queen. There's, there's an element of that and he's slightly out of his depth. And what is this world, these sort of toffs, you know, that he, he has this uh, view on. And, uh, and so it, it's a very complex uh, meeting. And I suppose like all these things in character acting, I suppose, which is what I do probably, is that it's a bit of you, and a, and a bit of the character that you're playing. The two have to live equally, I think. And have you ever spoken to any royals or politicians about doing the show? I think the closest I've got was doing Andrew Marr's show because he asked me to come on and I did feel like I was a politician, <laughs> possibly because I was talking to Andrew Marr. Uh, and I felt kind of able to give the odd opinion, perhaps. I felt, I mean, I have to say that I felt very... Um, uh, very dangerous factors when they do lots of research because they suddenly think they can be the person they're not, <laughs> not, you know, yeah, but, uh, you've, you've been you know, the bill for a couple of years you know. and you can solve a crime or whatever yeah yeah exactly you know, or you, you know <laughs> if I trained hard enough and I could become you know Chris Froome if I wanted to play him you know I, I you know I, I really liked Hal Wilson and I liked his consensus politics uh, the people would be screaming you know saying oh what do you mean consensus but his centre <laughs> politics and I did very much and I suppose that's where I'm at I think I uh, and I understand his view of consensus it's interesting that Joe Biden sort of come in and in, you know been elected in America and he sits probably in a not a dissimilar ship and that he I, he, he was actually a younger man and more of a firebrand you could almost say Joe Biden uh, particularly in the American context so Wilson has a bit of fire but also has a realism which I think is interesting. The thing that really intrigues me is when you spend time sort of living in the, the, the suit of a politician, do you end up with some more sympathy for them? Obviously, Gillian Anderson's going through this strange process of people, you know, liking Gillian Anderson and not necessarily liking Margaret Thatcher. I don't think people have quite the same strong views about Howard Wilson. But did you, did you end up with sympathy for politicians? I think the complexity of office is rather fascinating and I could understand why people would be drawn into politics as well as one's personal view of the world which I think is what makes good politicians excel is that they have a vision of the world that they want to impart and want people to share they want the world to be a better place so it's a terrible platitude but it that's but then it gets Most of them do. they do yeah 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 and then it gets changed and corrupted and they get into the game of politics and perhaps you lose that vision or it gets changed you know, you could say that young people are probably more to the left and as they go through their careers, they gravitate slightly towards the centre and even over to the right, who knows? So if you're on a long political journey, how do you 
you know, maintain your conviction. And, you know, you become a different person, I'm sure, as you, like many people from more humble backgrounds, end up in politics. Where do they... You, you can't sort of hang on to where you're from and you have to value that, but you, you are you yourself personally are in a different world. And so you've got these two things going on perhaps. I think, so the complexity of that is interesting and the sheer challenge of office must be extraordinary, particularly at the moment. I mean, to make decisions, good, clear decisions and what those are based on. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, I find it uh, like the law, I find it a fascinating world. Well, that's Jason Watkins there on playing Howard Wilson, what, 40 years after he was Prime Minister. But what is, it like, what is it like playing someone who's Prime Minister at that very moment? Later, we'll hear from Jan Ravens about becoming Theresa May. But first, the man who's played David Cameron on stage and screen. Don't be weirded out. It's the Governor of California. Mr Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I must be honest with you, I'm not quite Prime Minister yet. May need to get some others on side first. The, our system can be a little complicated, uh, all this parliamentary democracy and all that. Oh, I, 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 I wish I could terminate the whole thing. Yep, will do. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Mark Dexter um, playing David Cameron, making a very bad joke in Channel 4's drama Coalition. He also played David Cameron in The Audience, the stage play. Uh, um, interestingly, Mark also appeared in The Crown, but playing Tony Benn opposite Jason Watkins, Harold Wilson. Uh, and we started off, Mark told me about what he told Jason on the set of The Crown. You think you're under pressure, and to a certain extent you are, but at least he's not going to be watching. <laughs> so, exactly uh, right. Explain that, because how did you feel about the prospect of playing David Cameron while he was Prime Minister? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, it was something that I had to work very hard to just clear from my head entirely. It's hard. Um... But if I, if I focus too much on that, the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm being watched and scrutinised literally from Downing Street by the person I'm playing, um, I don't think I could have got the job done, especially when there were certain elements in our James Graham script that were controversial, to say the least. <laughs> Stuff which, you know, I knew he would not be best pleased about seeing. Yeah, I just, I mean, myself and uh, Bertie Carvel, who played Clegg and Ian Greaves, who played Brown, we, we sort of made a pact that we just, we wouldn't go there <laughs> in terms of, do you think, do you think they're going to be watching this scene? <laughs> what do you think they're going to make of this bit? How did you go about preparing for it? Well, this is the way in which I was lucky that I was portraying the sitting prime minister because he was on telly a lot. <laughs> so I had access to the guy. But, I mean, the actor's best tool at the moment is also YouTube. I don't know how actors prepared for anything before that. It, it all starts through observation. So it's sort of watch, do, um, that sort of process. And the theory is, and I, I think it does work, that the more you watch and expose yourself, as it were, to somebody just being who they are, it literally rubs off. So was there, um, was there a, a, um, something that... that, you, that helped you get into the character was there a particular i don't know way you pronounce something or, uh, or or a verbal tick or something what what how do you how did you capture your cameron that's an interesting question i, I wasn't aware of latching onto one particular thing but in retrospect i i think it was the hands uh, there's something about the way he 
holds his hands together when stood that I adopted without trying. I just found myself, he just sort of naturally comes to rest doing this sort of, it's like he's shaking his own hand. Uh, I never thought of it like that, but as I look at my hands now, he's kind of giving himself a handshake, which must be very reassuring when you're prime minister. And, and also, I think there was one other aspect. This, people talk a lot about the walk and how he had a pacey walk, but that kept, because I ended up playing Cameron again on stage, Stephen Daldry, who was putting on the audience in the West End. Oh, of course. Heard that there was some guy doing a plausible Cameron on some sort of film set. So he sent his minions out to do inquiries. And I, re I resisted doing it again for, for a while, but, um, you know, Stephen Daldry, West End, you know, there's only so much resistance you can put up. <laughs> um, uh, and we spoke a lot there about the walk. You know, he was a pacey walker. And you see that in Coalition, actually. The first introduction to Cameron is this pacey walk along a corridor. <laughs> um, so it's something of a signature. But what I was aiming for, and I hope, I think we, we all achieved it, was, was not having those kinds of crutches. Being at a point where you're so prepped that you're just approaching a scene. You're not, you've forgotten all the bits about how do I be Dave. Uh, that work is, is already taken care of so you just do the scene like you would do with any other role uh, and i don't know about um your own politics but did it did you sort of think about be, making him seem too nice or otherwise because it's a real life person it's a real life uh you know it, yeah active in politics i mean i i did have to look put a lot, a lot of my own personal politics to bed for a while much to the horror of my wife i have to say who saw changes that uh, she still reminds me of i mean there are some actors who say you, you always end up in love with your character or uh, you know loving your character you, you you have to give them a chance to exist the way they do in their own minds i'm not suggesting that all mps are in love with themselves far <laughs> from it i suspect they're all tortured souls at heart um, but you, do, you you can't hold grudges when you're approaching a role. Uh, um, so, so you ended up sort of slightly liking them because it's sort of part of the job. Did you ever hear from him afterwards? I've heard from other people that he was not massively displeased with what he saw, which was, which was nice to hear. But the, the sort of personal contact with him was more on the front end because we actually visited Downing Street and got given the tour by Ed Llewellyn, his then chief of staff at number 10. And I was in his office, so he, you know, I sat in his chair. He's a prolific doodler, it turns out. There's all kinds of doodles and squiggles all over his desk. Uh, but at the end of that, we, we spent sort of like an hour there, but at the end of it, Edward Welling came up to me and just said, play the boss well, won't you? Deadpan, uh, as though my life depended on it. And I just sort of crumbled and said, yes, please, tell him, I'll, tell him I will, tell him I will. <laughs> um, do, you, do you think you'll ever play him again? Uh, look, uh, I've had to come to terms with the fact that I do resemble the guy. So who knows? It's uh, I, I, I probably would. I did say that I would never <laughs> after playing him twice. But there's a lot. I'd like to explore his life now. That would be fascinating. Yeah, a one man show in a shepherd's hut, possibly. Uh, Mark Dexter, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> yes. No problem. <laughs> Mark Dexter there talking about playing uh, David Cameron. So from him to David Cameron's successor. During this election campaign, many people have asked, what will Britain be like post-Brexit? Would it be a more equal society? And to those people, I say this. Do you have permission to talk to me, you snivelling peasant? <laughs>
That is the brilliant Jan Raven. So I, I've been speaking to Jan as well, and I began by asking her how being an impressionist is different to acting in a show, a drama like The Crown. I mean, Julian Anderson in The Crown and, um, you know, Meryl Streep in um, I'm Lady, you know, it, it's, it's a very different process to the process of when you're doing an impression, um, you know, for sort of satirical purposes uh, in a sketch show. So, um, so... Uh, you know, it, 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 you're always obviously, um, you know, you're always looking for the for the verbal ticks. I mean, in in either case, I, I think in in um, in the case of, uh, you know, a, a, of satire, you're always looking for what's funny about them, what's idiosyncratic about them. Whereas probably if you're doing it in a as a as a sustained role, you're you're trying to use it more as a as an expression of the character. When I when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she barely said a word. So she was quite hard to get hold of because she never really said anything. And it wasn't until she went out on the steps of Downing Street and did that speech, you know, uh, do you know, uh, um, if, if you're born poor, you are more likely to die uh, four years earlier than anyone who's not. I mean, she, did, she suddenly came out with this, um, well, first of all, this sort of Miliband-esque kind of, we're going to help those people who just aren't managed, you know, just about not managing or kind of whatever it was. And um, you suddenly noticed, or I suddenly noticed that she had this, this voice that was two voices at the same time. So she was sort of going, uh, all the time. So it, it, it was like, it's apparently called diplophonic, two voices at the same time. I, I used to call her two-tone Tessie, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, in terms of character, what that voice kind of told you about the character was that she was full of tension. You know that, that she was um, that she was held, and that and that and that and that there was you know there was tension in the throat. There's tension around the mouth, and in all that kind of over uh, particular enunciation, all those things you know you can hear in an impression, but they also tell you a lot about the character. And I think it's quite interesting what Julian Anderson's done in the in the little bits of the trailer that I've seen. She's kind of, you know, she's gone for that. She's gone for the sort of seductive, open-throated um, voice like that that's very insistent, which is great. And it, and it, and you know, in the short scenes, as I say, that I've seen, and it's all very level and very soft and uh, very insistent. But actually, it was a bit more sort of. You know, the Thatcher, um, you know, in real life or the, or the impression that you would do if you were trying to be accurate is, is kind of more modulated. It's more up and downy, you know. There's more kind of, you know, and that sort of slight catch in it. Whereas Gillian Anderson seems to be going for that just sort of all, almost all on one breath. And it's quite interesting because when she gets to the end of the breath, she sort of runs out of the impression a bit. <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite fucking, funny. It's fascinating. You're right. It's just, it's just that sort of tiny noises or uh, which which you don't notice until someone else is doing it. You think, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's the sort of yeah. Theresa May noise. That's the Margaret that. Thatcher yeah. breath. Yeah, I, it's like it's like you you know you notice something that you hadn't noticed that you'd noticed before, and then as you say, once it's pointed out, you notice it again, and that's kind of that's a real kind of joy of doing an impression when somebody goes, "Oh my god, yeah, they do that." And um, yes, and, and and with Theresa May, it was this very particular. It's so unplayful. It's it's so <laughs> held, you know, because of course it you know obviously doesn't work on radio, but I mean the 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 physicality of a character tells you so much about them, and that's you know in particular with Thatcher, you know she had that very insistent walk, 
um, with their head thrust forward, what my mother used to call, here's my head, my bottom's coming. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Theresa May had that sort of rather stiff, stooped walk, you know, uh, which I used to sort of, you know, go around the stage doing, you know, it's like she's carrying a drip trolley. Uh, <laughs> and, and the face, uh, the sort of the grimace that she did. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find when you're doing, even when you're recording for radio, you end up taking on some of those physical aspects? Oh, God, absolutely. That's part of putting on, sort of putting on the character. Exactly, yeah, you have to do that. I mean, you're, you know, and, you, and you'll see, you know, if, uh, well, you won't say, I was going to say, you know, you'll see if you come to a Dead Ringers recording, you know, you'll see Lewis McLeod, you know, physicalising Trump. Um, and, you know, luckily, you won't see that anymore. Obviously, uh, People come and go um, in politics, mm. um, and at the moment, politics is quite blokey. So, whereas you did have, you know, Theresa May and Diane Abbott, and, you know, some of those yeah. those amazing yeah. impressions of yours, they've sort of slightly fallen out of out of the, the yeah. headlines these days. Yeah, well, there, there's um, you know, there's there's a number of them coming up through, you know, there's like Angela, Angela Rayner, who's like sort of the Liam Gallagher. Of, uh, of the Labour Party, you know, she's like, she's sort of, I quite like her, she's quite sort of punchy. And then, uh, you know, of course, there's Pretty Patel, who, well, you know, is, um, you know, putting through all this uh, policy. And I think you've got, you know, I mean, uh, Kamala Harris, you know, is going, <laughs> you know, she's kind of, you know, like, hey, Joe, you know, she's like, <laughs> you know, she kind of can't stop laughing. I love that. She's kind of, she's quite a strong character. So she's going to, um, she's going to have some work done on her, obviously. Um, and, is, there, is there an uh, issue? We've, um, I spoke to Harry Shearer before on the show where uh, talked about his, the voices he did on The Simpsons and the, the criticism mm-hmm. of, of white actors doing the voices of non-white characters. Yeah. Does that ever concern you when you, know, when you were doing Diane yeah. Abbott and people like that? Yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I wouldn't ever do it visually. Yeah. I wouldn't do it if we were doing a telly show. But I always felt that if you were a sort of voice artist and you you know you you would you're doing everybody. It, it's sort of like so now have we got to get um a black actor in to do Diane Abbott or or not do Diane Abbott because I, you know, Deborah and I are white, you know, I kind of think it's another kind of discrimination in a way whereas, you know, surely we should be kind of trying to, you know, sort of like blur those barriers between us as opposed to kind of putting up more. I used to get, uh, you know, I used to get quite a lot of flack, you know, from the kind of Corbynite um, uh, wing of the Labour Party when I did Diane Abbott on telly, you know, if I was, because if I was um, like interviewed on this week or something, you know, I, I might go on and do a bit of Diane. And of course, that's such a characteristic voice that it's incredibly popular because it's, it's very easy to make funny. So I've, I have stopped doing it. And also she's kind of gone into the background a bit as well, hasn't she? She kind of, um, I mean, I think partly because she made a mess of so many of her interviews, uh, they kind of stopped putting her forward. Um, and certainly since Corbyn's gone. But even before then, she'd sort of taken more of a low profile, I think. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I no, think yeah she definitely. Had- and she sort of yeah. just quietly dropped during the election campaign a bit as well. Quietly, it wasn't it's quietly as- dropped, you know, ever since, Yeah. But, you know, there are, um, there's a number of them, but they're not very, it's, it's like you say, until somebody takes a really central role, you don't really get the get the measure of the character. That was, uh, that was the brilliant Jan Ravens there. Uh, I mean, doing so many people, Carmela Harris is, is, uh, is tremendously good.
Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.